Hello and welcome to Season 3 of Mouthwash, fresh chat that leaves you feeling confident. The theme for Season 3 is better. Better everything, from AI to being fairer, big ideas to body language, if it's important to being a fairer person, business or planet, an expert and I talked about it. What follows is an edited recording, as Mouthwash is a live show created just for Twitter spaces, so the quality is more conference call than podcast sound booth. Sponsors are really important to me, so please take a moment to visit Ecology. They planted a tree in the TBD forest for every live listener we had. And if you want to offset your carbon footprint, you can do that easily. Just nip to ecology.com forward slash TBD conference and sign up. That's E-C-O-L-O-G-I dot com forward slash TBD conference. Also, I was honoured to partner with and test out Spaces Dashboard, the helpful tool that's making it super easy to find great audio on Twitter. Check them out on Twitter at Spaces Dashboard, all one word, and mount from Mouthwash for a surprise. Mouthwash is the audio show of TBD, the conference that people call TED without the bullshit. It's going hybrid March 31st, 2022. So get your tickets for the in-person event or the global live stream at universe.com forward slash TBD conference. Universe.com forward slash TBD conference. Use the code Mouthwash. You'll even get 25% off every ticket you buy. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the show. Sign up to the newsletter on my Twitter profile. That's Paul underscore underscore Armstrong. And you'll get informed about all future seasons of Mouthwash. Trust me, you'll want to hear what we have coming up. Finally, as with all good podcasts, please share it on a network you trust. Enjoy the show. It's a strange time around the world. Zoom fatigue to climate change, the great resignation to the metaverse. A lot seems scary, unfamiliar, and people are rethinking everything from core beliefs to the way they work. A core theme seems to be emerging, a desire to improve and make things, including themselves, better. So that's the theme I've taken for season three. Better. Better everything. From AI to PR, body language to open innovation, I'm speaking to massive brains and executives from Walmart to Babylon about making you and the world we live in a better place. Season three includes New York Times bestselling author Duff McDonald to security experts, speech coaches to Silicon Valley startups who want to reverse your aging process. It's already turning out to be a great season. There's plenty more left, but make sure you get the SMS reminders so you don't miss a minute of it. Okay, let's get on with tonight's show. Today's smart cookie is the formidable Palmy Olsen, technology columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. Welcome to the show, Palmy. How are you doing? Thank you. It's good to be here. I'm doing pretty well. Thank you. Excellent. Excellent. All right. Before we chat more, let's talk about where we are and how you can get involved. Twitter Spaces is still new to a lot of people, so let's explore it a bit. On the mobile app, the top bit is called The Nest. That's where I or any speaker can post tweets like the one you see up there already. Mouthwash uses this to discuss them in a section we call Desert Island Tweets. Uh, You can click through to follow accounts, links, etc. It's pretty handy and a unique feature to Twitter Spaces, which a lot of people are desperately trying to copy. Uh, you can have up to 12 speakers, including the host, to request the mic in any space. And uh, if you want to do that, just request it in the bottom left. Mouthwash is more of a show format, though, so use the hashtag Mouthwash Show or DM me, and I'll do my best to weave in your questions. And if you need anything uh, to do with accessibility or captions, just click the three dots and you'll find everything you need there. Okay time to help me and the world out let's share out the space if you simply click uh, the tweet in the nest which i'm going to put up ever so shortly uh, just literally click on that and then just share the space out and uh, it'll be a good one for all and the reason for that is ecology we partnered with them again this season because they plant a tree for every live listener that we get in the space so if you want just hit the um 
the staple with a little up arrow on it and share out the space or share that we're live now if you go to my timeline and that sort of stuff. And then uh, for every single person we get in live, you will get a tree planted in your honour. Uh, and you can find out more if you go over to ecology.com and that's E-C-O-L-O-G-I.com. And thanks to Ecology, TBD has planted over 10,000 trees now. So it really is like a subscription for the planet. Um, you'll obviously, if you sign up, you'll get your own um, forest. Uh, but if you want to add to ours, we won't we won't stop you doing that as well. And you'll get a personal profile. You can set your own goals and that sort of stuff. The idea is to get the world's emissions by 2040 right the way down through collective action. So again, head over to ecology.com forward slash TBD conference. You'll find out more. Um, Mouthwash is also proudly sponsored by Spaces Dashboard, the company that's helping good audio be found. Um, they provide new, fast and easy ways to see the, li the latest live, upcoming and past conversations on Twitter Spaces. It really is helping great, great people um, find voices as they're uh, you know, doing new spaces all the time. Uh, if you want to try it out for yourself, you can simply follow them on Twitter. It's Spaces Dashboard, all one word, and uh, you'll get yourself an invite. Um, right, I think that's enough plugging. Um, on with the show. Let's shower up Parmi in a frankly filthy amount of emojis. Um, click the heart with a plus down the bottom, and if you begin furing t uh, furiously, uh, you'll be able to choose uh, any which one. Do more than one. Keep them going until I until I stop. Um, but yeah, if you're ready, steady, go. Okay. Palmy Olsen is no stranger to technology, covering it for decades for the likes of Forbes, where she was London's bureau chief and staff writer, the BBC and the Wall Street Journal before joining the mighty Bloomberg as technology opinion columnist, where she doesn't mince her words and holds power to account regularly on everything from facial recognition to social media platform skullduggery. Palmy is also author of We Are Anonymous, the in-depth look at the hacker collective Anonymous, where she interviewed many of the hackers behind the attacks on the CIA, FBI and nation states. Through hundreds of interviews, Palmy showed a very different side of motivations behind the hackers involved, and I think it's one of the most interesting books I think I've read around that subject, so I definitely urge you to get We Are Anonymous. Okay, Palmy, what was the first thing you thought of when you woke up this morning? <laughs> oh my god, I didn't know you were going to ask me that. Probably that I wanted to go back to sleep. <laughs> no i was honestly i've been trying to go running um in the morning first thing like at 6 45 6 30 and i was gonna go this morning and i didn't i just slept longer so there you go oh wait well, don't you, they say you can break a streak once can't they but not twice that's the bad that's the bad thing so yeah yeah it, to, tomorrow you're running that's all i'm that's back all i'm back on track tomorrow yeah for sure excellent excellent <laughs> um when I first started mouthwash, I would ask people, what's the last 12 months been like for you? But now I have to say, what's the last 24 months been for you? <laughs> it's been a very different period for a lot of people. Yeah, Groundhog Day for everybody, I guess. Um, for me, massive changes. I had a baby a year ago, so that was one thing. Um, and then I changed jobs uh, two and a half months ago, moving from the Wall Street Journal to Bloomberg. Um, so quite a lot of upheaval, but all, pretty much all great. And I, I loved being at the Journal, but Bloomberg has been a fantastic employer so far. I'm really excited uh, to work with the people I'm with now. Oh, good, good. Um, I've known you for a while, but I've never actually like asked you anything about your like childhood. What was the young Palmy like? Um, it's a funny question to ask. Um, I grew I. I actually grew up in the United States in the South, although I'm living in the UK and I've been here most of my life. I lived in um, Alabama and Tennessee and Georgia from the age of like four till 13. And I did a lot of tree climbing, ran around barefoot. It was a pretty awesome uh, childhood for the most part. I was really into um, trying to draw my own comic strips. And I remember really getting into Star Trek The Next Generation uh, when I was around the age of 11, 12, and, and that became my favorite TV show. 
Uh, I, I too am a Star Trek fan. I haven't been to a convention, but I will say I know more than the average bear about it. Yeah. Um, what made you get into journalism? Um, so I actually originally wanted to get into fine art and I actually went to art school here in the UK and just turned out to not be that good at it. And, uh, but along the way, I just realized I was just so interested in hearing other people's stories. And I've always just had this innate curiosity to, I don't know, I'm just like kind of a nosy person. I just ask people questions all the time and want to know more and it's never enough information for me. And so journalism just turned out to be the perfect way of scratching that itch, I guess. Um, and it's like literally the best job in the world. I think I, I love it. I, I can't imagine doing anything else. Oh, that's good to hear. I like people who like their jobs more and more. I'm hearing people say like, I really don't like my job. I think I'm going to change it. And that's things. So it's nice to hear somebody love their job for a change. Oh, it's, um, it's great. You get to, you get to speak to people who are like way more interesting than you, like all day long. It's fantastic. I would highly recommend it. See, I think that about doing the show like this. I'd, I'd much rather speak to other people about what they're doing rather than what I'm doing. So, yes. yeah, that's absolutely, 100%. I'm not saying I'm a super boring character, but I'm not the most exciting out there, that's for sure. Yeah, um, I feel the same. Excellent, excellent. Okay, we're going to talk about AI uh, and making it better and that's the thing. But let's go wide um, on it for the sake. Um, on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being completed, there's nowhere else to go. Where, where do you think we are right now um, with AI? I... Um, I think probably around a six. Um, I don't know. It's kind of hard to answer that question because there have been some really amazing strides made with AI in the last few years. But in terms of where I think AI could go and what it can do, there are still so many limitations to it um, that I, I actually wouldn't want to say higher than six. Mm. Do, you, do you think we've got um, to one to six very quickly and then the rest of it will be really slow, a bit sort of like mining Bitcoin or? <laughs> like a long tail of, of progress. Yeah. Um, that's a good question. I think I think it will be like that. I can't see any kind of what the major leaps would be in AI. Maybe, gosh, um, maybe in something like automatic writing, you know, and natural language processing. There, there definitely that has definitely improved pretty significantly in the last few years. But no, I, I can't think of any specific area where that'd be a big leap. Do you think quantum's going to have a massive effect? Um, it gets spoken about a lot, but I just like whenever I speak to people about quantum, it's pretty much the main use case is security, um, like just making super strong encryption. But actually putting it into practice in any like any way seems to be years out anybody who's working on it right now is just very abstract and theoretical um and i just can't i mean i think china is actually quite far ahead on quantum um but uh but yeah i think that's a ways out mm, i definitely want to talk about china a little bit later but considering where we've got to already we've got a lot of issues coming out why is ai so controversial so I think when people first think about controversy with AI, surveillance is a big issue that crops up because that's a big practical use case for AI. A facial recognition, for example, is being used um, by police in London. They're trialing live facial recognition to try and spot uh, offenders on the streets. Um, in China, it's used significantly to try and uh, conduct surveillance um, en masse. Um, not just from limited watch lists, but, you know, across, you know, millions of people. Um, so I think that's probably one of the main ways that AI is seen as controversial. For me, 
I have a personal bugbear with people talking up um, the capabilities of artificial intelligence when it actually is quite limited and can't perform in the way that people have said that it will perform. And I think in certain high stakes areas, that's that's a problem and it's potentially even dangerous. Yeah. Um, I think you call that pseudo AI, don't you? Um, that's a big bugbear of yours when it comes to AI. Tell us a bit more about what, what that is and why it bugs you so much. Um, so pseudo AI is actually like another facet of that. Um, that pseudo AI is when companies say that they're using artificial intelligence, but they're not actually using AI. They're, they're using a simple program, just simple classical programming techniques uh, for just like basic software, or in more egregious cases, they're using people, human beings behind the scenes to carry out you know, cognitively intensive ca- tasks that, that AI algorithms aren't able to do by themselves. Um, so that, I think that's, that's, that's a, that's another bugbear of mine. I have a lot of bugbears, but that's, that's another <laughs> one. But, um, kind of going back to what I was saying earlier about, um, AI that doesn't work. Um, that's more like, to me, that's more like the over-promising that some companies do for, so just, just let me give you an example. Um, Mark Zuckerberg has, uh, frequently talked up, uh, the capabilities of artificial intelligence in policing harmful content on Facebook. He he told members of Congress a couple of years ago um, that AI would be the scalable way that Facebook would be able to tackle things like misinformation and hate speech. Um, but actually, the, the latest revelations from the Facebook whistleblower has found that that actually hate speech, only 2% of hate speech on Facebook is is taken down um, by algorithms. And that actually there's a massive problem with policing content and AI is just not doing the job properly. Um, Facebook does have something like 15,000 people who are content moderators and to solve the problem, it basically needs to double that number. It just needs more humans, it doesn't need more AI. Is it simply a case of doubling it? That seems still like very few people for the amount yeah. of content that they have yeah. going through That's, the pipes. <laughs> I, you're absolutely right. Maybe they should triple it. You, the reason why I say double it is because there was a study that came out from NYU Stern earlier this year, which looked at this entire problem and uh, kind of looked at the number of people who were doing this, and it recommended just doubling the number from 15,000 to 30,000. But, you know, it's, you're absolutely right. It probably needs to be even more than that. Just given how like billions of pieces of content that are being uploaded to that site every week. Mm. I want to talk more about Facebook um, a little bit later, but ultimately I think AI is still sort of saying overview for a while. Ultimately AI is here to help, right? What's messing it up? Is it greed, desire for control, fear, lack of knowledge? a mix of those or is it something different <laughs> um i think pretty i think all the above uh those are those are great reasons for for me in the areas that i'm looking at i see a lot of over promising by companies and i see you said lack of knowledge i think there's definitely a, a lack of knowledge among companies who are buying ai systems and a lack of knowledge among people uh, about the the capabilities of these systems so um you know, for example, the overpromising thing is happening with Tesla. Like uh, Elon Musk was saying 
for years that, you know, it's almost legendary. He was saying in, in 2019 to his investors that um, there would be one million Model 3 Tesla cars on the streets as driverless robo-taxis. Can you imagine, like, Tesla cars as robo-taxis on the streets? And his time frame was actually 2020. Uh, so that was last year. But, you know, Tesla's like nowhere near um, having, um, you know, fully automotive capabilities, uh, full self-driving capabilities yet. Um, so I think there's, you know, and healthcare is another area where there's been, um, you know, a lot of promise for AI to detect breast cancer and radiology scans. Um, but some recent studies have shown that actually these systems just, they're there's too many false positives and, you know, they don't work yet. It's not to say that the promise isn't there, but there just needs to be way more training, way more data, way more time put into this. This is a much harder problem than I think people realize. You mentioned a few things there, which sort of, you know, gives way to a sort of larger question, really. Um, do you think AI, or artificial intelligence, needs to be given a new name? It's the phrase has been bandied around a lot mm. and there's massive misunderstanding in that. Do you think we should abandon artificial intelligence? Because for a lot of people, it's still very much Hollywood, isn't it? But for people in the tech industry, a lot of it is machine learning. You know, so how do we, and terms matter. That's what I'm finding more and more as we move forward. You know, yeah. nuances matter and that sort of thing. Should we just like abandon it or should we create something different? No, I think language is, I think that's a great point. And it's kind of a blessing and a curse to have such a great name like that. Artificial intelligence just sparks this notion of a sentient living robot, the stuff of science fiction. I mean, that's kind of what Silicon, Silicon Valley is fueled by are the craziest dreams of science fiction and then making them real. And that's wonderful. But you're absolutely right. I think it kind of creates too magical a uh, sense of expectation for this kind of technology. And you, you get executives who are like, okay, let's actually implement this and use it to, you know, moderate content on a social media platform. Let's, let's use it to, um, you know, scan for uh, COVID signs of COVID on x-rays. And, and then actually it doesn't it doesn't have that magical quality outside of a lab setting because these systems work fantastically in a lab setting. But when you put them out in this the unpredictable real world, um, oftentimes they fall short. And, and I think to use a term like machine learning, if people could just use that term more, I think it would help underscore the importance of the learning that that these systems are learning all the time and they're making mistakes all the time. Um, and it takes time. They just need lots and lots of good, clean data uh, to to actually work properly. No, I agree. I think for, for me, when I look at like the problems and who's causing them and what's happening and that sort of thing, I think some of the blame, if that's the right word, goes to the VC world for funding things without doing due diligence on things like bias or where they're getting their data from and that sort of stuff. I mean, I look at the numbers from last year and they spent 75 billion last year on AI startups alone. Mm. And we all know that they're not all gold. But who is out there sort of giving that sort of line in the sand of sense and that sort of stuff? How do we, is it just the VCs that default or is it other people? Um, I hate to kind of cast blame on venture capitalists, but I mean, they're kind of doing their job when you think about it. Like these companies do need money to grow and they're, 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 they're selling the future and the VCs are buying the future, essentially. Um, you know, it, it, I, I'm reminded of a few years ago, I met up with 
a venture capitalist in in San Francisco. Um, he was in, uh, on Sand Hill Road, which is this famous road where all the big VCs in Silicon Valley are all based on this road. And um, he was telling me about this app that he wanted to invest in in China um, that was using artificial intelligence to aggregate news for you know young people. And it was just a news aggregation app, but it was a really effective recommendation system. And he said, you know, this app, people are on it for 75 minutes a day. That is the average amount of time. And I kind of like looked at him and said, um, well, do you think that to be on an app for 75 minutes a day is actually all that healthy? And he just kind of got this deer in headlights look like it was it was as if he hadn't no one had really asked him that before. Um all that mattered, I think, in that moment was just the fact that this AI was so effective at keep, keeping people hooked to this app. And he just wanted he wanted in on that. So I think like for a lot of VCs, they get kind of blinded by 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 this sense of needing to be needing to have a stake in the next big thing. Um, and they sometimes forget what the consequences might be. I mean, I'm actually um, there was this development quite recently where. Um, Sequoia is changing the way, I don't know if you heard, Paul, but they're changing the way they invest in companies. They, they're taking a much more long-term focus on their investments. And, and I think that's going to actually improve that issue if others, so. if others do the same. I think Biz Stone, um, one of the co-founders of Twitter, is actually doing the same thing. He's taking, well, he's only okay. taking bets in longer-term um, properties. Like he, if they want a return or they want to exit in five years, he won't take them on. So I think that's yeah, quite there interesting. You go. Yeah. yeah, there you go. So maybe there's like a little bit of a shift going on. You know, people have been burned by things like WeWork and, you know, it's and, and the Vision Fund has had a lot of missteps. And I think VCs are kind of like, okay, let's, let's, and the, this whole blowback with Facebook. I mean, I don't know like what's driving this, but it definitely seems like a more responsible approach to investing. Mm. Um, I don't know if you know the answer or if it's even a fair question, but we talked about pseudo AI before. How big a problem is it? Give us a percentage of all the ones that are out there. How many <laughs> do you think are like pseudo AI? Oh, I'd love to give you a percentage. I don't know. I think it's definitely like a sliding scale. There's definitely not like, you know, either or. And I think lots of companies are mostly actually if you think of it as like a bell curve, I think mm. most companies are in this really gray area where it's not quite ai it's more like a you know it's more like simple programming or there's a lot of humans in the loop who are doing a lot of the work but they're training the ai at the same time so it's 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 very hard to kind of pick out like companies who are just definitely not using ai at all because a lot of them are kind of doing a bit of both mm. what's your biggest tip to help people spot pseudo ai um i think well, one is to check, you know, if you're like an investor, you probably want to um, just check who's on staff, like the people who work for this company, do they have PhDs in machine learning? What kind of people are they hiring? Um, are they computer scientists or, or not? Um, another is just, you know, if, this, if the product or the service is just too good to be true, like too magical, if it's doing something that AI, that you've never heard of any software able to do um it may well just be too good to be true 
Interesting. All right. Uh, let's talk about ethics, uh, often mixed up with AI. It's a huge area that gets a lot of attention, rightly so. Um, codes being created by us pesky, fallible humans and then repurposed and repurposed. Um, we have a lot of biases baked into our systems already. How do we make those systems better? Um, it's a it's a great question. And I think, you know, one simple fix is simply to hire more people to to actually design algorithms more ethically um, or act or just be the oversight for the people who are designing these these algorithms. So, um, you know, within DeepMind, for example, which is um, Alphabet's um, artificial intelligence lab based in London, they've got something like a thousand um, people working for the company, most of them engineers. They've got a, a quite a small team of people who deal with ethics. Like it's a very small, t as far as I understand, it's, it's like around a dozen or two dozen people, maybe like significantly less than that. Um, I, I, I'm sort of not, I'm, I haven't spoken to the company recently, but I know it's, it's pretty small. And there was a, a recent report that came out um, called the State of AI Report. It's by um, these AI investors, Nathan Ben H and, and Ian Hogarth, previously of Songkick. Um, and it's a really good I'd really recommend anybody, anybody interested in AI should look at this report. It's so comprehensive and so good. And there's this one slide where they spoke to something like seven different AI companies, um, including DeepMind, and just asked them how many people they had working on AI safety. Um, and they all came back with really low numbers. I mean, we're talking handfuls, like a handful of people at each company. Um, and and the, the, uh, the report's authors were pretty surprised about that. And they felt that that was a problem. Um, and so, yeah, I think one way to fix it is just to hire more people to actually look into this stuff and, and give them the power to have some element of oversight of these algorithms. Um, you mentioned Alphabet there, so Google as well. Um, they, in their most recent um, sort of tech update, weird pandemic thing, not live, you know, that sort of thing, very canned yeah. videos and that sort of stuff. They really did labour a point which sort of gave me a bit of hope for them and how they're sort of building in the future when it comes to their um, photography, um, when they were looking at building colour balances for different skin tones and that. And it seems to be yeah. like they're building that AI brand new to be, you know, a bit more inclusive. So that, that sort of gives me hope. How, in general, how is Google doing, though? They seem to be pretty quiet when it comes to AI. DeepMind's obviously just launched... Um, isomorphic labs um which is developing new drugs for those if they're not aware um is google any better than the other big players in the space oh 100 percent, they are i mean google google search um is so effective it's it really is i mean if you think about the the, the brightest minds in artificial intelligence um, and just so many of them are working for Google right now, or they're working um, for DeepMind, or they're working for Google Brain. You know, they're all part of this kind of alphabet umbrella. So, so Google definitely has like a huge um, proportion of, of the talent, of global talent in, a, in AI working for it. Um, you know, when it comes to ethics uh, and AI, I think an interesting thing that happened recently, um, right before I left the journal, a story that I did was about how DeepMind had actually been trying to um, separate from Google for the last few years because the founders were concerned about a future, much more powerful form of AI uh, being controlled by a single corporation like Google. And they wanted to spin out into something like a non-governmental organization. And they were lobbying Google 
Google's founders, Larry Page, and and some of the other people on Google's legal team um, for for years. And then this year, uh, finally, um, Alphabet kind of just said to them, you know, it's not going to happen. Just stop negotiating for this and and you're not going to be spun out. You are part of the Alphabet family. Um, And they actually tightened control of DeepMind. And they also centralized control of um, oversight, sorry, I should say, of ethics of AI uh, by a um, a, a review panel that's part of Alphabet. So, you know, I've you know, it's hard to kind of talk about Google's uh, achievements in AI and its disparate bets, but it certainly seems to be trying to centralize control of the development of AI and even the oversight of the ethics of AI. What do you think are the repercussions of those decisions for, you know, you and me? Yeah, um, I was actually, I remember writing that story and thinking, gosh, like maybe I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical that DeepMind would ever like build art, what they call artificial general intelligence. And that's essentially AI that kind of has the same level of thinking as a human being. They can, it, it can learn itself. It can create itself um, independently. And a lot of people are kind of skeptical that's ever going to happen. But if it did, if it did, you know, do we want Google to be uh, in charge of that? Like, um do we want one company to be in control of that? I mean, I don't know. I think I think it's a little bit concerning, and I think it's worrying there there isn't some kind of third party oversight of that. There is literally just the company regulating itself. Yeah, I think that's my that's my big worry for a lot of these big tech platforms at the moment. When they start to sweat, I really worry. You know, yeah. a lot of them they have you know this big thing in the background called China happening, and mm-hmm. we don't really get a lot of. Um, visibility into what they're doing, you know, and AI in general. They're all meant to be, you know, um, publicly sharing information, coalitions, so they don't get regulated, but that doesn't happen. So it's kind of interesting to sort of see um, where we're sort of like going. But, uh, you know, any talk uh, about AI wouldn't be worth listening to if we didn't talk about China. So so what about China? Um, Like I said, very little visibility in what they're doing for a number of reasons. But China does seem to be ahead in the game, or is that not the case? Are they just ahead in facial recognition? What's the reality there? Yeah, it's a good it's a good question because I think there's been this kind of sense of angst among um, you know senior tech executives in the U.S. and, and in government officials about um, AI supremacy and whether China's ahead of the U.S. and and how far ahead the U.S. is. Um, you know, I, I, a colleague of mine, um, Tim Culpin, based in Taipei, wrote a really good column about this just a couple of weeks ago, um, which I would recommend reading, where he kind of said, you know what, um, AI, like China's put so much money into AI, it's got big AI companies that are worth billions of dollars. But when you think about it, actually, their strength is kind of narrow, and it's focused primarily on surveillance. So things like facial recognition um, for cameras. But when it comes to more general applications of artificial intelligence, um, like automated writing or you know, pr- predictive modeling or self-driving cars, the country's companies aren't really that far ahead compared to, say, Silicon Valley. So his, his take was, you know, yes, China's ahead in one way, but, but only in a very narrow sense. And I kind of agree with that. Where do you think their their sort of heads are when they think about other companies in the Western Hemisphere? I think China probably has the same sense of um, 
I wouldn't call it angst, but there is definitely like a push among uh, the countries you know, in, in Beijing to, to, to be the best. You know, when it comes to facial recognition, Chinese companies do rank very, very highly. There is um, an agency in the United States called NIST, which every year they test facial recognition algorithms and they find out and they rank them. And and in the last few years, Chinese companies have just been taking up the top 10 list more and more um, because they're just getting so good at matching and recognizing faces. Um, so, you know, there's definitely huge ambition from China to be the best in AI. And, and certainly when it comes to te surveillance technology, they probably are the best out there. I feel like I need to do a mouthwash on China. Um, that's definitely one in my, my oh, head. So if, if anyone's got experts yeah. in China, let me know. I am up for that and that sort of thing. Um, you mentioned facial recognition there. And when we mention facial recognition, we need to talk about everyone's favorite punching bag, Facebook or Meta, <laughs> as they like to be called. Uh, I like to call them the big blue misery machine, but um, there you go. <laughs> that's um, a good one. Facebook's recent and ongoing media storm surrounds, amongst other things, their use of AI and algorithms. Um, AI in that regard seems to have failed. Um, or is it that we've failed AI? Yeah, I mean, I, I was really struck by the Facebook whistleblower, Frances Haugen, when she spoke to senators in the US and then she came to the UK, she spoke to lawmakers here. And one of the very first things she said in her testimony, which is something that I don't think a lot of people kind of repeated that much, but she was saying, you know, Facebook's difficulties and failures really point to a failure in AI and a failure in machines to, you know, to police content and to weed out harm. The company has just put too much faith in automation and in algorithms when it should be putting more humans um, into these systems to do the police work, to, you know, to actually edit the site and, and weed out the harm. Um, so, yeah. Sorry, I hope that answers your question. I wasn't sure. Is that what you meant? Or? Yeah, I think that'll do. Um, you mentioned <laughs> Frances Haugen. Like you said, she talked about the company's um, products harming children, stoking division, yeah. uh, weakening democracy, and, and a lot more. Um, I think yeah. she's an incredibly brave woman. Um, very interesting that she did it at the time she did and how she did it very publicly in the way that she disseminated through the media. Um, I think what's really interesting for me is that I look at AI and AI has been blamed and that sort of thing. But really, isn't it the people at fault yeah. when it comes to Facebook? Oh, like absolutely. You know, absolutely. That you know, I see what. Yeah, you know, on that point exactly. Um, I thought it was really interesting after Francis testified to um, to UK lawmakers. So what was that like two weeks ago or something? Like within days of that, Facebook's global head of safety. Um, it's a woman named Antigone, and I can't remember her last name. It'll come to me. But anyway, she's the head of safety for Facebook, and she was kind of being grilled by these uh, British lawmakers. And one of the lawmakers actually asked her, you know, who do you report to? And and she kind of didn't answer. She kind of evaded the question a couple of times. And then when she was asked a second or third time, she finally said that she reports to uh, she reports into Joel Kaplan who is actually the head of Facebook's public affairs, um, AKA the company's top lobbyist. Now, when you think about it, like a company like Facebook, which has almost 3 billion active users on the site, you know, should the head of safety, like the head of safety for the company be reporting to the top lobbyist or should they be reporting directly to Mark Zuckerberg? I mean, I think in an ideal world, they should be reporting directly to Mark Zuckerberg 
or at least to some kind of auditing committee, but not directly to another part of the company that has a completely different kind of vested interest than who perhaps the head of safety would have. I think that phrase you use, vested interest, is perfect for that that scenario there. You, you have to look at the decisions being made and who made them and ultimately who has to live with them, really. And I still look at Facebook and go, it's still Mark's playground, you know, that yeah. sort of thing. The buck stops at him. He needs to make some choices if he wants to, you know, move things around and change things. But he can't just, like, paint a new picture of a new world and go, that's what we're going for, never mind yeah. what we've built. That, for me, was the, the sort of issue. Um yeah, I mean, that said, I get why they're doing it. They're worried. They've got lots of problems. Facebook's not just losing popularity with teens. It's losing popularity with those under 30. And those are the ones that advertisers cover. I get it. You know, mm. they've, they've got problems. Um, you know, it's not just spending less time. They're creating less. And that's that's the key. When you're not really engaged in the platform, you create less. And that's the problem because then you don't get the data. and They can't mine it and all of that. Um, yeah. it's, a, it's a big issue for them. I get why they're all freaking out. Um the next move definitely seems to be the metaverse um, that they're pushing on us. Um, in reality, we're decades away from that, though, um, especially what resembles Hollywood, which what everyone has in their heads. And when they hear the word metaverse, they think sort of Ready Player One or The Matrix and that sort of stuff. Um, we're decades away, though, right? Yeah, I think so. But then again, I mean, to be fair, like even Mark Zuckerberg kind of said that as well. He was like, you know, we're probably... I, th I think he said that. I swear, I read it or, or heard him say in his presentation, "This is years. This is years away." He's not saying this is going to happen next year or even the year after, but you know, this is like a five, ten year plan. Um, but I think even in that case, Facebook just, you know, and I'm not saying this because I don't like Facebook's kind of um, the way that it has dealt with well-being and safety on the site, but just like even. From um, a purely objective standpoint, when you look at how Facebook has tried to build products in the past, it's really struggled to innovate. You know, a lot of people say that um, Facebook's um, R&D department is effectively Snapchat because it has copied so many features of Snapchat and just kind of turned them into its own features. Um, and, you know, and it's like another example when when Facebook brought out, do you remember this um, video calling device they had called Portal? Yeah, I had one. I tried it out. Oh, it right. Okay. Yeah. So when that first came out, the really weird thing about it is that it had Amazon Alexa on it. So it didn't have its own digital assistant. Um, you had to use Amazon Alexa. And that's kind of an awkward thing to ship a product with. Um, and even though Facebook had bought voice recognition companies, it had just, for various reasons, it had not over the years been able to build its own voice technology that it could actually put into a device. Um, so the struggles that it had, even just on that kind of technology, which is kind of low level compared to something like building the, the metaverse, I think does not bode that well for anyone who hopes that it can build an entirely new um, networking platform that we're all going to be floating around in. Oh, that's interesting. So you kind of think they're a one-trick pony, and they might not have got their one trick completely right. They sort of built something very successful, and then people just naturally moved on to the next thing. I And it wouldn't be, you know, to be a one-trick pony in tech is so common. I mean, just look at Look at Nokia. Like, do you remember? Do you remember getting the Nokia feature phone? Like, was your oh, first Nokia. mobile phone a Nokia phone? Like, everybody had a Nokia. And I think what was it like up until around two thousand seven? Nokia was like the biggest mobile phone maker in the whole world. It had 
the biggest global market share. And then as soon as Apple came out, it just kind of ate its lunch and, and Nokia just kind of came flew off the map. And that was because Nokia just really struggled to move into smartphone technology. It couldn't build its own app ecosystem um, like Apple could. So it could do one thing really, really, really well, and then it just really struggled to pivot. And the same things happened with um, ARM, which is kind of like a lesser known. Um, they, they design, um, the, they make money from licensing chip designs, um, and they, they tried to get into the Internet of Things. It's like this newfangled um, you know, era of computing, and it just didn't work. The whole thing didn't work. The business stagnated. They had to spin it off, and they just go back to the thing they do best. So it's definitely like a recurring problem among big tech companies is, yeah, the, you know, one-trick ponies. That's it. I guess they've sort of made the world's biggest one-trick pony, if, if you know, most powerful and one-trick pony. I guess that's not a bad thing to have on your tombstone, right? It's um, not. It's not. It's, if it makes a lot of money um, and if it's done a lot of good for the world, then, yeah, why not? You know, be satisfied with that. But um, And people have tried. But, uh, when I yeah. always think of Facebook or Meta, I still, I'm still not. It's going to take years for me to call it Meta. But anyway, <laughs> when I think of Facebook or actually big tech in general, I think of scales like virtual scales in front of me, and I just start putting yeah. on everything that I think good and bad, good and bad, good and bad. Okay. When you have those, imagine you've got those scales in front of you now. Yeah. How does Facebook look to you? Oh, um, I'm, I'm trying to really look at it objectively and not be kind of swayed by because there's been so much negative press about Facebook recently. And I know that there are a lot yeah. of people out there who find it incredibly useful, like they run businesses on it. Yeah. There are families on there. You know, there are people who, you know, like support groups, like so many support groups on this site. Um, I think there's a lot of good, like a lot. of, But it, in terms of quantity, there's a lot of good. But there is a lot of bad. I mean, it's like for me, the, the scales visual is hard because it's like cigarettes. Like I think only 10% of people who smoke cigarettes like go on to get cancer or something. That's a stat I heard. So 10% versus 90% is small, but that's still like a horrible statistic and it should still mm. be concerning for people. So same issue with Facebook, I'd say. Oh, I didn't know that statistic about cigarettes. I'm go oh, that's, that's weirded me out. Anyway, okay. Um, <laughs> It's, it's a weird. Oh, I don't know if you've seen it, but there was um, there's literally a bill just been proposed in the US called the Filter Bubble Transparency Act. Yes. Um, which should require Internet platforms to use uh, a sort of version of their services where content isn't driven by algorithms. Do you think that's a smart move or a desperate one? Oh, I think it's I think it's a great move. Um, the one thing I would say about that, though, is that it's not the first bill like that in the House. Um, so there was a very, it's almost identical to other Senate bills that were introduced in 2019 and then in June of 2021. Um, my colleague, Tay Kim in New York, was just looking into this. We were just talking about it. Um, so I think like it's definitely you know, just another step towards trying to um, push um, tech companies or to push the social media firms into a healthier kind of way of showing content. You know, this is what the Frances Haugen advocated for. She said that engagement, what she called engagement-based ranking, is the problem because an algorithm is choosing what you should see at the top of your newsfeed. And often that'll be the most titillating thing or it'll be something that makes you feel outraged. Um, but if you just order it chronologically, then you won't have that same effect on your mental health. Um, so I think this is something that uh, regulators and lawmakers have been pushing for. 
I, I think my only concern is that it's just going to be a box that the tech companies can tick. They can just add a little feature on their site that says you can you have the option to make a chronological if you want, and then nobody's really going to do it. Yeah, I think it was interesting when I read it. I was like, oh, Twitter's been doing that for years. And that's yeah. when they, they did it a couple of years ago. And I think people were like, yes, it's come back. And then they saw that people were sort of interacting in very different ways. And so they've left it up, but they don't promote it anymore. And I think that's what you're yeah. talking about there, isn't it? It's sort of like, you can do it. We're just not going to recommend it. You know, that sort of thing. Yes, so exactly. We just kind of hide it away in the small print. Um, my co- Again, my colleague was looked around and found it in Facebook as well. Facebook does have the chronological feed option. It's in um, the most recent section of the right-hand menu. Um, So you do have to dig around for it, but it's there. Always do have to dig around on these platforms to do anything, I find. Anything of use, it's always like three things in, like cancelling Amazon's like 26 screens in or something crazy. It's nuts. Yes. I would be remiss if I was speaking to you not to talk to to you about the book and Anonymous. Um, Robin Hood got hacked recently and it got me thinking about the book again. Um, I should make it clear, actually, Anonymous wasn't behind that attack or haven't taken... um, you know, thing for it. Um, apart from the annual Mass March, though, I haven't really heard anything about them recently. What, what's Anonymous up to these days? Yeah, I mean, it's like tumbleweeds, isn't it? I mean, after, um, so when I wrote my book, gosh, that was like eight or nine years ago now. That was really, I would say, the peak of um, Anonymous's notoriety and activity, too. Um, and I think the thing that really stopped it from growing and continuing was just people got arrested. The people who were doing the hacks, that were kind of doing the media work, they got arrested and it kind of really had a chilling effect on the rest of the network and anybody who wanted to get involved completely understandably. Um, I thought it was really interesting actually with the Robin Hood hack that it was a social engineering attack. So it wasn't like an exploit in the code. It was just literally someone talked to one of the customer service agents at Robinhood and was able to find some um, some information that allowed them to, to get all these passwords. Um, and social engineering was a big part of what made Anonymous so successful. It wasn't just being able to, um, you know, a lot of these guys were script kitties. They weren't like serious cybersecurity uh, experts or coders. Um, they just knew basic stuff and they were really good at social engineering, like social engineering the media as well. Um, so I think that was, you know, that's definitely something that has not gone away and it still works today for, for the gray hat hackers, the black hat hackers, anybody who wants to, to get information. Do you think we'll see a different organization rise up after Anonymous? It feels like we're almost ripe for another big something to happen. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I think that would be so interesting. It's I, I feel like the imagery of Anonymous has really stuck around. Like the Guy mm. Fox mask is still, you still see that at protests um, and in the odd internet meme here and there. Um, I don't know. Like, I feel like some of the tactics that were used by Anonymous to, you know, kind of grab attention or, you know, deal with the media are kind of being used by some of these more other kind of crazier groups that have sprung up, like anti-vax mm. groups and... QAnon groups, but um, but you know, as 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 far as some other kind of hacktivist groups, I don't know. And and the the beauty about these kinds of things is you could just never predict what they're going to do when when it was happening. You couldn't predict who they were going to target next, um, and you couldn't predict when they were just going to grow out of nothing. 
Interesting. Okay, um, it's time for your uh, Desert Island tweet, um, the part of mouthwash where the guest picks a tweet or two that's changed their mind or way of thinking in some way. So if you turn your attention to the nest, I just put up one from the Academy or Benjamin Enfield. Um, Palmy, why did you pick this one? I'll read it out so someone knows. It's all about the Facebook when it went down and that sort of thing. So someone deleted large sections of the routing. Uh, that doesn't mean Facebook is just down from the looks of it. That means Facebook is gone. <laughs> Yeah, I chose that tweet because so on my laptop on Twitter, I use a special um, plugin for my browser, which actually hides all the numbers on Twitter. So I can't see all my likes or retweets or anything like that. And I also can't see the likes or retweets of other people's tweets. So everything is just kind of bare. Oh, and you have to you, I, I only take tweets pretty much at face value. Um, so I had that chrome extension on when the big facebook outage had and when that outage happened there was so much activity on twitter people were just it was all people could talk about and i remember this tweet coming up and it was so dramatic it's implying that facebook has basically been deleted off the internet um, which is nuts but if i hadn't had the <laughs> my plugin and i think i would have seen that it's i mean i can't see it now but i think it has something like is it more than 100,000 likes or something crazy? Tens of thousands of likes. At least. It has 207,000 likes. Oh, my God. 126,000 oh tweets, <laughs> retweets. No, quote tweets. And then 67,000 retweets. Yeah, yeah. But so, it's good to see that people are adding something to it, which is nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, so I think just... I don't know that I would have necessarily taken it seriously, even with those numbers there. But I think not seeing those numbers really when that tweet came up and I saw it during the outage, it was a lot easier for my brain to just look at that and just, I don't know, use a little bit more critical thinking and just see that it was total nonsense, that that probably was not the case. It was completely over dramatizing the situation. Um, and it was just a reminder to me just to, to just be wary of, you know, Things that look like they might be true just because they've gone viral aren't necessarily true because they've gone viral. You know what I mean? Like, uh, yeah, I think we just need to be more wary of all the numbers and, and, and validation that we see of people's tweets. I think that's a very good point, a very good point. And a, a solid place to leave the conversation tonight, I think. Um, thank you for being part of Mouthwash Palmy. Any final thoughts or advice to the listeners when it comes to better AI? Oh, gosh. Um, yeah, I think the, the main thing with AI is, um, you know, it needs good training data. And so for anybody that's trying to build AI systems, it really comes down to having solid, clean data and focusing on the data um, rather than trying to make the most elaborate um, architecture or beautiful, intricate model. Uh, you know, 90% of the work is the is the grunt work. It's the dull, boring work of pulling the good, clean data together. And that makes for safer systems. So if people can focus on that, then we will have better AI down the line. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Okie doke. I've got an amazing cohort of people this season on Mouthwash. Google Xs, security experts, entrepreneurs, designers, speechwriters, best-selling authors, big tech, Silicon Valley startups to Walmart. Uh, if it's important to being a better person, business, or planet, we're going to be talking about it. Up next is New York Times best-selling Duff McDonald, and we're talking about better presence, living in the moment, taking joy in the here and now. We'll see you same time and place tomorrow, 8 p.m. GMT, 3 p.m. EST, and noon PS.
university. Or if you prefer, let us remind you when we're going live, thanks to the clever folks over at Norby. Just head over to mouthwashshow.com for all the details and pop in your mobile cell phone and boom, you'll get a snazzy little text message uh, winging its way when we start. Who knows, there may even be a pun or two in the text I couldn't possibly say. Once again, my thanks to the amazing Palmy Olsen. Follow her on Twitter, at Palmy, and check out her work over at Bloomberg Opinion. Please show your appreciation one more time with a shower of emoji for Palmy as the lo-fi music plays us out. Thank you for joining. Thanks to Ecology for planting a tree for every one of us who joined. And thanks to Spaces Dashboard for helping good audio be found. I've been Paul Armstrong. This has been Mouthwash. Fresh chat that leaves you more confident only on Twitter Spaces. Thank <laughs> you.